I'm delighted to be here today with Jesse. Um, I understand that Jesse is a friend of Mark LeFevre, who's been on the show a number of times. And uh, I, I've heard that Jesse does music and art. I've heard some of your music online, Jesse, and I have to say that the chord progressions that you use are so, I would say, maybe poignant and nostalgic and uh, evocative. And it kind of makes me think, I had one of my guests that was on recently was uh, from the the YouTube channel Music, Meaning, and Mystery. And um, he talked about there's a certain kind of music that the shamans use to call a person home. And that, that's the way your music sounds to me. So dare I say it maybe even sounds a little bit liturgical? Is that going too far? Yeah, yeah there was... Uh, not that I've studied it formally, but that was one of the intents uh-huh. uh, was to have uh, kind of write a modern, sort of a modern romantic liturgic in a way, uh, liturgy. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, explore the idea of the call to the adventure or call of adventure, depending on uh, where you see it with different um, ideas or ideals. So. Well, I can certainly see using that kind of music as a background to <clears throat> doing a lot of creative endeavors as well. So, so Jesse, we'd like to get to know you. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your background, how you grew up. It sounds like maybe you live in the UK. Is that correct? I'm in Australia, Sydney, Australia. In Australia. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. And um, so tell me a little bit about how you grew up and then maybe you could talk about how you got to know folks like Mark and some of these other people that are in what we call this little corner of the internet. Yeah. Uh, between many different, different parts of sub communities, I think. Uh, so how did I grow up? That's always a, I've been thinking about how to, how do I narrativize that in a short session? I saw session here. Uh, so luckily both of my parents are together. So uh, they, I have a complicated history with Christianity and Christian music. Uh, my parents are still pastors of a church over in another state. Um, that's been a long and difficult journey for them, and it's probably affected our family quite severe with different trials, you could say. Uh, so I got into music at a younger age and then had some difficulties uh, due to my dyslexia and kind of left it by and then went into things like uh, drama and making films and just film in general and then was the late high school that I picked up music again picked up guitar and then that kind of transformed um yeah the the what what I thought I was going to do in life I no longer thought I was going to become the next Terrence Malick. I thought I was going to become John Carpenter, uh, who's a who's a film writer and a music composer as well. And so, yeah, I had a split in my sort of aspirations or dreams from a young age, and it's still stuck with me. Actually, still have these um push and pull tendencies between you know, what is my potential. Uh, what is what can I do in the present moment and what am I doing and what do I want to accomplish? I've always had these sort of tensions within me. So, yeah, in high school, I discovered a music program. Um, my friend kind of gave me on the side, you could say, 
And yeah, that really changed what I thought music was. It changed what in particular changed was going from a technical aspect of music to a symbolic or representative or a creative aesthetic sort of aspect. And yeah, that, that was early days of music technology um, on computers that, yeah, that kind of gave me a lot of hope that maybe I could not just be the dorky kid in his bedroom with a guitar trying to sing songs about broken relationships or teenage angst or whatever, but something more and something perhaps that would serve a higher purpose or carry the divine spark. Uh, I got a scholarship eventually through a couple of different means to come do a Bible college over here in Sydney. So I've been here ever since, since that, um, little did I know what accepting that scholarship would be. It was, yeah, I, I can look back on getting that scholarship and thinking, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a happy moment. That was that for those three days, I was glowing and with excitement and anticipation and, and hope. Um, it was just after the global financial crisis had happened. Mm. So I lost a lot of money and a lot of hope then um, of doing something outside of this smaller city that is Adelaide. Uh, so coming here was, yeah, it was a, a big step and a yeah big sort of promise. Yeah. I would say the first year here was great. Nothing much happened. And then after that, there was a series of tragedies. You could say if it was, if I could, I could probably not go into everything, but it was, I had a car blow up on me. I had a car. I had many car accidents. I had a lot of things to do with cars that really gave me a lot of uh, pain points. And if I had, I probably had experienced some depression before I'd come to Sydney. When I was in Sydney trying to pursue my dreams and aspirations, that was that was a really big um, test of faith in a lot of ways, um, a crisis faith. So, yeah, you could say that. There's, there was a road of trials getting yeah getting to where I am today and creating sort of the art that I want to want to keep putting out in the world and uh, keep inspiring others with uh, so yeah doing the scholarship that that worked out well unfortunately it was through a Christian Bible school essentially so they had a creative arts program within that um, and then due to the yeah to the sort of tragedies and finishing that i kind of left left with a lot of debt and a lot of pain and a lot of grief still stuck around in what was basically a mega church uh try to find my own place there uh did carve a space for me at a time for a time and then yeah even that kind of tended to corrupt and alienate me and f- feeling like I was at odds with a lot of the, the sort of cultural northern beaches aspects of Sydney uh, so that was its own sort of road of road of trials and crisis of how do I leave here when this has become my home um, and sort of I think it's kind of kept me together as an institution um, but it wasn't it wasn't ultimately um, helping me take the next step in my life and in my creative journey I kind of got stuck and I chose to be stuck too which is probably the harder bolt for me to swallow mm. uh, yeah and so then in the middle of that I released one album that's out in line called The Weight of Expectation 
So that was my, um, that's on Bandcamp. That was my sort of first step into creating something, uh, yeah, with a, with a sort of more, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to create Christian art that wasn't complacent, wasn't mediocre, that had a, had an edge, you could say, uh, less, less on the rebellion sense of that, but more in the sense that, um, there are many styles of genres and there are many, uh, forms of expression. Uh, but you could say if, if you wanted to create Christian art, I had not seen all possibilities explored of that. So I, I started, that was my first attempt to go, okay, what is, what is this? That went kind of okay. I had sold CDs back then. That's, that's a different era. <laughs> now I don't sell CDs anymore. Um, you just dated yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, very much so. We handmade the CDs too. It came the the cover art was like this and then you'd open it up and you had a full scale had a full scale um picture in there so there we we handmade the cds and yeah sold about 100 of those which was which was quite good um so kind of broke even on the on the budget somewhere in the middle of yeah fitting into that make a church and not fitting in at the same time i had a second album out i put a second album out could these quiet places um that was a reflection on uh our identity probably in that core aspect and trying to find my own identity and trying to um come to that more contemplative view of life uh due to the sort of crisis of faith and depression I had gone through in different ways and um yeah some of the things that my parents my myself were going through with yeah relationships and and how that kind of forms or in, affects your perspective on life so yeah maybe i could I, maybe it's better not to explain that album that album is purposely meant to be ambiguous in a lot of different ways i have thoughts about re-releasing it and releasing more more music around that time um I tend, I'm not sure how about you, Karen, but I tend to create a lot of art, you know, for a season and then trying to go back, refine it and go, these were the, my favorite bits, or these are the bits that I think work the best. And then a lot gets left to the wayside. And then often you reflect back and go, oh, maybe I was too critical, overreacted there. Or it, the, what I created is at odds with the, my present moment and I was reflecting how I felt about that present moment onto that particular artwork. And then, yeah, that that has a really symbiotic effect of uh, perhaps perhaps artists need managers and, and producers or, um, yeah, very good friends or good partners to jump in and say, hey, well, you're overdoing one, it. One of the things I've found with paintings, because I have, I mean, I went through a period of time where I was taking this class where I had to do two large paintings every week. Wow. And it was a 10-week class, and I took the class eight times over the course of about six years. Plus, I was doing a lot of painting in between there. So I was pumping out work. I mean, I I have drawers and drawers and drawers full of large uh, works on paper. And there was a time when, you know, 
you can't expect everyone to be a home run. And so maybe out of every 20 paintings, I get four or five that are that are good enough to show and maybe one or two that are actually um, things that I treasure. And so the rest of the stuff just sits in the drawer. And a lot of it, I'm, I was kind of embarrassed and I thought I should just burn it up or throw it out or something. And then every few years I go back and I look through that drawer and I pull out a piece and I go, oh, there was way more in that piece than I thought when I did it. And now I like it. <laughs> You know, so I can totally understand what you're saying. You, you're cutting bits and pieces out, but then you go back later and you look at the whole thing and you realize, wait a minute, there was some sort of a story in that whole piece. I need to understand that better so that I can move on with, with what's coming next. Well, yeah, in my case, I've, I've lost hard drives of material that I've written almost three times. I had a near, near scare halfway through... Um, yeah, halfway through one of my projects that I lost a whole hard drive and that was oh, that was that would be crushing. crushing. Yeah. That was yeah. Luckily I was able to get yeah, I got it all back, but that would have been at that point of my life, that would have been this is my life's work stuck on this hard mm -hmm. drive and why have not why have I not copied it across mm -hmm. multiple things and stored it under the under the sea, etc. Um, so which I do have now. Um and probably still could I've still thought about, hey, copying the copy of the copy and sending that to a mm -hmm. family member and say, yeah, just make sure this never, yeah. Because um, as with music production or any sort of digital production, you just end up with files and then file management is a. So the uh, so the album you sent me is that was that your third album? Yeah, third or fourth album. Yeah. Oh, because so, okay. yeah. the one you sent me is called Open Futures. Yeah. So open futures is uh, probably a good, yeah, a good subject. It was to talk about. It was my first step in collaborating with someone. So it has a singer on there. Uh, where we were both very inspired by two artists. One's called Sigur Ross. Um, they're probably well known by now. And another slightly lesser known. It's called Hammock. Um, and they're they're kind of in that space that I would like to consider myself in, which is Christian artists making or Christian people making art. Um, and so of whatever, whatever sort of background of Christianity or sort of um, professing beliefs of Christianity um, or difficulties with difficulties with it. So yeah, open futures uh, first came about because I was listening to a lot of Joseph Campbell. And then uh, the Peace and Wave happened in, uh, yeah, in 2014, 2015, 2016. That started to really ramp up. Um, just as an aside, I was getting into photography then. Um, I actually ended up essentially becoming Peterson's first, I uh, first photographer or in Australia for his first tour here. So I, I, yeah, it was a small local guy doing the event coordination. And then uh, I just said, Hey, can I do the Sydney event for free for you just so I can meet him? Because I was very, um, very much considered Peterson and I still do consider Peterson a hero of mine. 
And so I just thought maybe if I do it for free, I'll get in, I'll get to shake his hand and say hi and say thank you. Um, and then that kind of very quickly said, oh, can you do both Sydney events? Sure. Do you want to come down to Melbourne? Sure. Just pay for flights and accommodation. Do you want to do Brisbane? Sure. Okay. So you're now doing the entire tour. We have some money now. Do you want, do you want to be paid? I'm like, of course I would like to be paid. So yeah, that ended up being a, very much a blessing and a miracle and i still look at sort of look back on that as a sort of a, a very very much a yeah a blessing and a a big insight into how the world works in some sense where you just you see an opportunity you've just got to go for it and make it happen um regardless mm-hmm. of the cost um so that that's what it, that's what happened there but it was also quite difficult staying up to one o'clock each morning waiting for the waiting for him to sign every book which he did that tour so he's i think i took about four thousand photos about 200 of them with just the event the rest were all people all people just wanting their book getting their picture with him you got 30 seconds moving the line next person so yeah um that was quite a that was quite a quite a journey there that that's kind of amazing so um that would have many benefits right you're honing your photographic skills that you're you're getting to spend time in that arena and i suppose you got to watch all those events as well so you're getting filled up your mind your spirit your (laughs) everything it was yeah and to see how different cities reacted with the same season mm-hmm. you could say at the same time like it was same time you maybe better way to say things uh so he did do he touched on similar things between those four or five uh events but he did it in different ways and the crowd was different and the crowd reacted differently and you could feel that you could feel the room have very different um resonances on different topics so Melbourne, he did essentially, he'd just come off the flight, he had a nap, he woke up, and he did the event. Like that was, you know, and it was a 36-hour flight, coming, leaving Toronto, going to America, coming coming down to Melbourne. So, um, Now that was before he got, that was before he got sick, right? Yeah, it was just before he got sick. That was just... Around the, uh, do you know the Kathy, the famous Kathy Newman interview? Mm-hmm. He just had done that, so he'd done England, he'd done England, gone back to Toronto for a week, gone into America, and then for like half a day, essentially as part of the flight path, and then come here. So yeah, he was, he was tired, but he still did it. He still stayed up till eleven o'clock that night after doing after doing the talk. Uh huh. So. But I mean, was... it's probably all of that 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 led to the burnout. Yeah, and yeah that sounds like a lot. Well, I'm I'm glad it didn't uh, have the same impact on you. No. Um, one of the things that you said earlier, I wanted to touch on. You said one of the things that you learned was to go from a kind of technical music to a more symbolic music. Could you flesh <laughs> that out a little bit so that I understand what you mean by that? Um. So there's there's a obvious dialectic or contrast you can make between the classical world and the jazz world. Um, often 
jazz gets seen as a symbolic and classical gets seen as a technical. I kind of would beg to differ. I, I think what jazz has become now is very still very technical based. Um, a, a symbolic for me is a uh, it's a narrative based music. It's a story based. It's a, it's a um, it's both carrying a tradition and then shining light on new areas to explore. It's it's um. Uh, it's less important that the word or the words get said in the right places rather than the communication or the meaning gets gets done well. Um, mm-hmm. Famous media guy called Mar- Marshall McLaren says the medium is the message. So I think um, if your intent with music is just to do the three minute, three chord pop rock song, um, it won't have a lot of symbolic resonance, but you can still see the acts even in the 60s, 70s that had symbolic um, elements to it. Those songs have lasted a lot longer than the um, the sort of catchy pop tunes. Um, yeah. I suppose you, you could also played... look at that. I suppose you could also look at that um, polarity even within classical music though, because it's perfectly possible to do classical music in a technically perfect way that loses the symbolic message of the classical music. And it's certainly possible to do art that way. You can, you can paint a representational piece and you can make it perfect right down to the eyelashes and the wrinkles on the skin. But what you're seeing is a technical skill rather than seeing a narrative of meaning. And, um, there's just a big difference in the way that the art is produced and the way, and well, with music, I guess it's not only in the way that it's composed, but also in the way that it is played back for people. Right. Um, I'm guessing you could take a purely technical piece. And then if you played it in a certain way, you could come, you could invest that meaning into it again. Sort of more like you're working with concepts than with uh, skill. Yeah, I um, I'm not sure if you know this particular artist. There's a gentleman called Max Richter. Um, he's a famous musician and composer. So he did a work called uh, Vivaldi Recomposed. So he took the Four Seasons, as a famous Vivaldi work, and reinterpreted it in a I hate to use the word modern, but <laughs> in sort of a more of a modern guise or a more of a, I would say it's a more symbolic guy. So there's aspects of those original melodies and chord progressions and harmonies, but it has a different emphasis on it or different uh, significance. So I went to a concert that where he played that here in Sydney in the Sydney Opera House, um, and diff- you could see that the crowd responded to different different pieces differently. What was interesting is it was a dual dual concert. So he had the Favaldi reworked, then he had his own music. And soon as the the crap soon as they said, we're gonna do that intermission now and there's gonna be the second performance with a new complete smaller ensemble of players, um, about a quarter to maybe half of the crowd got up and left. Purely because it wasn't the old thing. It was just it was something else. And it was a concept album um called Infra. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and even the way that was played is very different to the way the album was recorded, um, which was great for me. I wish they had could put that out because that 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 performance was yeah that was performance was more uh, had more impact on me or more resonance than the thing that I thought I was coming for. Um, so I think symbols work that same way too. You you think that there's a formal meeting but often the informal meeting, which is a lot harder to conceive or to grasp at first, kind of stays with you or sticks with you. Mm. Um, yeah, and I also think, and I know like Jonathan Peugeot is very conscious of this too, that if you start getting, if you start taking the symbolic meaning too far down and you start decomposing it, it loses all the... <laughs> This is awesome. Yeah. It has to have an embodiment and a tactility. It has to, yeah, it has to have a, a visceral effect. Um, one of my arguments I don't know how to make well is that in some sense, uh, all art is reactionary. It, it, you have, it has to engage with you uh, for me to be art rather than to con- for, be, for it to be content or creativity. I think art has to have a... Um, which does play into a, a different side of, um, yeah, different philosophies. But I think, yeah, I think art has to have a has to have a emphasis. Otherwise, it's just it's pointing to a it's pointing to nowhere, or it doesn't. It points back to self reflection, and mm-hmm. at that point, um, yeah, you can do that well. You can make a self reflection look really, really interesting, but. Um, what is it done for and what's to tell us with that, that that would be, that's another, um, I forgot to bring up that one of the other aspects that kind of came into writing open futures was John Favahey, which I, I have thoughts on and struggles with. What, what um, was that again? The, the... John Favahey. So oh, John Favahey. I thought you said yeah, the, drum, the drums of Haiti. <laughs> no, sorry. John, John drums of Haiti. That'd be a great. I know. Note. Right. That's so funny. Well, before we move on to John Verbeke, I just wanted to say back on the thing about self 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 referential art and everything. Um, I think I told you before we came on that my husband is in technology in Silicon Valley, and he's always talking about how if a company allows the engineers to drive new product development. <clears throat> most of the time they're going to drive themselves right into the ground because the engineers have ideas. They have all kinds of ideas, but it's typically an idea of something that really makes them think, and they love this idea and they want to produce this idea, but there's no market for it. So if you don't, first of all, find a reaction out there as to what people need and what they want, what they're looking for, and then try to build that, you have no connection between the the producer and the, the receiver right so i think in that sense all marketing has to be reactionary too i mean there has to be a connection between the product the marketer and the consumer for a product to have any Mm -hmm. life to it yeah well obviously the the good stories last right they haven't there's an audience there always is an audience for it um you know the the Iliad or the Odyssey, uh, those are the stories that have come to us through millennia 
and they still have a resonance um, with us today. So um, it's hard to say what determines that or the path that, that leads us to um, yeah, understand what makes those, like how, how to become in that sort of great works category. Um, often it's the test of time, but often it's, yeah, it is, it does, does this story have a, I would argue a symbolic resonance that kind of outlasts or goes beyond the original intent. Uh, so I think there's also a side of that though, as I rethink this a little bit. Um, when I first started doing art, I was way too, um, dependent on the reactions of other people. Mm. Right. And if, if I would submit it to an art show or something and it got rejected, I mean, sometimes the, there would be a thousand submissions and only a hundred people would get in and okay. So I wasn't one of the hundred best. Okay. Or it could also have been, and I'm, I'm not saying this about myself, but a lot of people get rejected at art shows. It could also have been that the judge who was making the decision simply had a different category in mind when he was looking at the work, right? But yeah. even in sense of if it didn't sell, I would set it aside and think, oh, well, maybe this is no good. If I had an art show at my house and people come in and they few things they buy, I have a tendency to think, oh, that, that must have been good because they bought it. These other things they didn't buy, maybe they aren't good. But then I had some experiences after a few years that were very interesting. There had been one painting that I had had out for five years at my art show and it had never, never gotten sold. So I put it away. I thought, well, maybe there's no value to this piece because I didn't have a confidence in, in what I had produced. And the sixth year, somebody came and they said, where is that piece? <laughs> And I said, well, I put it away because, you know, it hasn't sold. Oh, I come here every year just to see that piece. That's the only reason I come to the art show. <laughs> Wait, <bring it. laughs> you know, can I buy it? Well, so, I mean, that just really helped me to see. First of all, I don't think it's necessarily what speaks to people is not necessarily the technically best or the skillfully best, maybe, or even the conceptually best work, but there's something in me that was speaking to whatever was in that person that maybe doesn't speak to everybody. Maybe it only speaks to that one person and yet it speaks. And there's a, some sort of a great mystery there that I've never figured out. Yeah, I've heard it called uh, the universal particular. So oh. there's something that's kind of that's an interesting phrase, the universal yeah. particular. Yeah, uh, I've 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 I reappropriated phrase here for a few different reasons. But yeah, there, there's there's something um everyone can everyone appreciates beauty. I think it's very hard to uh, make a case that beauty is not appreciated. Um, but there are there are particular elements that don't resonate with people for whatever reason, or um, that people need a, a bit more of an understanding or a background to to appreciate better or to have a to to let the light in. You could say um, often beauty kind of gets rendered down into more of a mathematical formula. Um, which kind of removes negative signals as a, as a kind of a confirmation 
that something something can be hauntingly beautiful, um, which sort of theoreticians and philosophers don't like to agree that there's there, there are aspects of um, beauty that are hard to deal with. And I think um, even Christianity does make a case for that um, within the the pterogogue, I think it's called the triform with the three three the creature with three or four heads that's hard to look at. Um, and then even the face of God is very hard to look at because I think it it has that um, the aspect of where the um, that self reflection is no longer valid anymore. So your confirmation biases and your um, your perspective gets radically shifted when you when you face yeah true beauty. Um, so yeah, getting back to getting back to kind of trying to follow some thoughts out there's um there's an aspect of beauty that people want to see is authentic and that this is this is definitely beautiful or this is definitely what should be appreciated um but we kind of flatten down the world so much where we're we're terrified of um things that we can't we can't see outside of our perceptions uh while our kind of biases of what we have um or we're not even willing sometimes to admit that we have a bias towards a certain style or perspective and that kind of, that limits us from appreciating. Um, yeah. The, the craft that someone else has um, the, even saying artwork for me sometimes is a cringe element because um, work has that sort of Marxist tendencies that everything is just a product that you put out in the world mm-hmm. um, rather than, craft it's a it's a it's an essence it's a it's it's a it's a kind of it's from your labor but also it's a it's something that goes out from you it's not going to flow back in some sense um so you know a furniture maker um makes a chair but he doesn't make a chair to sit on he makes the chair and the chair is a blessing to others um rather than it's a kind of this symbiosis um, of of product and creation and um, work and labor, it, it, those sort of yeah, those sort of um, difficulties we we have with our sort of more materialistic senses of what things are come into play. Uh, with well, maybe what we, we need to redeem the word mar- work away from Marx. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. there is something about producing art that is um that's work um labors i think i mean you mentioned that you had gone through a lot of suffering in in college and um i was messing around on twitter before we got on this call and i noticed that somebody had posted a video about how suffering avoidance has weakened the current generation um that just pops into my mind that when i when i hit a wall with a painting the reason i don't move further is suffering avoidance because because it's work to push through that barrier that that place where you you hit a wall you don't know where to go you don't know how to do this it's going to be a risk it's going to require digging deep down inside of yourself looking at things that you don't like it's work 
Um, it's not Marxist work, <laughs> you know, so maybe we need to redeem the word somehow. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps the, have you, do you know Stephen Pressfield's work? Oh, there we go. Stephen Pressfield's um I have heard the name. Art. I can't quite remember. It seems to me I looked him up a few years ago, but I can't quite remember. What does he do? So Stephen Pressfield wrote a book called The War of Art. Um, which was a flip on the Sun Tzu book, The Art of War. So he's talking about uh, aspects to deal with the inner critic. Um, he gets a lot right. I don't think his solutions or his progn- like his prognosis is, is good. I don't think his practice or his frame holds that much water um, for that long. Um, and he, he has admitted that. That's why he's written several books trying to um, going beyond that sort of initial frame of, of the, how to deal with that inner critic or he calls the resistance where you find resistance and how to how to move past that as an artist or he's coming at it from a writer perspective of um, showing up and just doing the work on the page and to see mm-hmm. to see what happens um, there's actually a better book uh, a better an even better frame I would argue through a lady called Julia Cameron Mm-hmm. She wrote a book called The Artist's Way. Um, yeah, I am familiar with her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hold that book in high residence. Um, I also everyone. like the book Art and Fear by Ted Orland and somebody, William Bales. Orland and Bales. I've heard of that, but I haven't, I haven't gotten to that yet. Typically, I get into those books when I'm in a bad zone. And I, need, I need something to kind of come over. Well, come Art over and Fear is a, is a fantastic book. It's very short. And if you don't have time to read it, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dolly that is hanging around the this little corner. She did a great series reading, reading oh. the book chapter by chapter. And she has that lovely South African accent. So, yeah, I've connected with her a couple briefly for a couple of times. Yeah. So um, she just did a beautiful job on her channel and. That makes it a little easier to absorb rather than having to read it. But you really only have to read the first 50 pages maybe to get the drift. The last half of the book is more about marketing. Right. The first half of it is what to do about the fear. Yeah. The the way the uh way Julia Cameron, the artist, the artist way goes about it is um more of a process of navigation and kind of documenting where you are and what and being more i guess more pragmatic about what what the next steps are um and constantly um being okay with the process of um difficulty and managing that pain rather than sort of diagnosing it and then going oh well here's a cure uh she's far more form the sense of like drawing out those aspirations and dreams and seeing if that potential, which is a which is probably a concept that I'm I have struggled with for a long time in my life, going, I'm someone with great potential, but how do I deal with that? You know, I've gotten into doing abstract art like yourself in high school. I've, you know, done drama and acting. I've um, you know, tried to start a photography business a few times, tried to make films, you know, kept a lifelong passion of music like what do I do with all this potential before me and how do, how do I navigate when I'm in a season what those 
what those next steps are. I think she does that quite well. Um, because often, often, um, we need to observe and believe. Uh, it's not seeing, we need to have the evidence that, you know, like you're saying too about like people appreciating different parts of your artworks and, you know, someone coming to you and saying, oh, I come here for that particular artwork because you needed the evidence. You need to observe that that was actually resonating with someone. Um, so seeing people come is one thing, but having that observation and that sort of evidence that you're moving in the right direction is probably more more important than the belief. The belief is what drives you to keep going. But um, even when you emailed me and we set this up, you you described my music, and that was like, oh, okay, like that was that was a completely different opinion and some great feedback, and that was that was quite inspiring. Um, so. Yeah, I, I the other thing that's maybe happened, maybe this will be a helpful way to connect a few things. When the flat world, the 18th century onwards, kind of the mod modernistic world came through, um, artists tended to become so solos, and we tended to become uh, autodidacts. So we tended to become less a part of a tradition and more a part of having self knowledge. Um, and self-expression rather than being taught by a master or taught through a different school or being a part of a scene or a community um, by the end of you know the 20th century by the end of the 80s everyone was kind of their own product rather than um, a continuation of a series of philosophies or schools of thought or genres um, which is only become more relevant now at the social media age where everyone's trying to be a micro expression of a series of iterations that get you to you know um the most nuanced of metal you could say you know now it's like oh i'm into gent which is a subsection of a subsection of a subsection of rock music i like th those sort of um yeah micro or self-expressions tend to yeah tend to have continued this process of flattening things out rather than having uh rather than it leaving a legacy of uh, connecting schools of thoughts together which is far more the old old system or th thought of art um where you know you can uh one of my favorite abstract expressionists is uh matisse but you can see where matisse's influences are uh, you can see that he's doing a completely different thing, but you can see where his influences are, and you can you can go back to even like uh, Turner would be another sort of favorite of mine. You can see where he started and where he's going and what he's trying to do and the differences with that. But so there's there's kind of a point of no return there where the uh, it no longer became uh, an abstract. Uh, of an idea, it became abstract for its own sake. Um, and it, when a symbol is disconnected from a telos, it tends to break down and decay, like like you said. So I could keep Yeah, and the it. thing about Matisse is that I always found so interesting is that he became more and more and more abstracted as he, he lost his eyesight more and more. And um a lot of people looking at it today would have no way of knowing that that was what was happening. 
Yeah. But as as his as his health went down and he could no longer take a canvas and go out in the field and look at a mountain and paint a picture of it, he started cutting things out of paper, laying laying in his hot in his his uh, sick bed, cutting things out of paper and mounting it on panels. Um, so he was trying he was just continually trying to find some way to express what was in him using what was available to him. And um, yeah, there's something in that. I, I haven't thought it all the way through, but. Neither have I, but I, yeah. I, I definitely appreciate, although there is this part of subversion of his works so and like, okay, that's mm -hmm. fine. Um, yeah, again, it's appreciating the craft and less on the work. I felt mm -hmm. I was kind of stressed. Um, yeah, there's, um, Yeah, there's all that could be said about art and artistry. I'm just trying to think of the, the threads I'm trying to connect here. Um, even even in Matisse Day, he's, we're going from uh, art as a an externalization into an internalization project, um, which gets into things like performance art, um, or yeah, even in. Uh, yeah, even in Picasso, we're starting to break down um, all forms, all sense of Plato's or, you know, the Platonic vision. Um, he's now, he's um, he's using symbols, but he's not, okay, he's misappropriating symbols um, and kind of distorting their, their, the connecting, connective tissue that symbols have to one another. So, um you can think of the symbol of a bird, but then the symbol of a bird is very different from the symbol of an owl and what an owl means and the implications of an owl and the spirituality behind an owl and the different stories that have owls in them um, have a thread. But what what I would argue that you know, Picasso was doing, and you see this in music as well, um, that connective tissue to go from a symbol of bird to an owl and then the different ways owls are expressed in symbolic forms those sort of links are slowly being um subverted or uh, yeah disconnected or yeah have muscle atrophy like they connect they're connected they're disconnected from a body or embodiment um which makes things more obscure and harder to deal with um so it's no wonder today there's such a where people and particularly Christians have a they put up a wall towards art because they, they they themselves don't have that connective tissue to understand and to navigate between those things that they're resonating with whatever for different reasons or things that are it's impossible to understand at first. I think yeah, you brought up Jonathan Pichot before. He was yeah another great influence on me. Um, particularly his brother's book as well. That that book is a gem, if you if you have the patience to sit there with it. Yeah, well, let's talk about that book. Um, what what was it about the language of creation by Matthew Peugeot that uh, that really spoke to you as being a gem? Is there anything that stands out to you? Let me see if I've got my copy here. Yeah, mine's somewhere up there too. Um... For people who haven't read this book yet, this is uh, it's a gem. 
Um, oh gosh. I think yeah, you know, I would say there's there's aspects of that book where he starts to talk about how things fractalize and how, and how how clearly he explains that and um there's also uh I would say an informal argument going on in the, in the book about how words change and how words have symbolic meanings and often those little um, he puts the little side notes on the end of it, each each page. He's like, by the way, this word means this and for breath. And if you've been following along, you'll see that how breath and wind are connected. And you just, you get an insight um, in that moment that you wouldn't have made because you needed the, again, that sort of connective tissue um, to see, uh, to see the world clearly or just experience reality you can almost say in a different way. I think that that was, um, yeah, that definitely came into Open Futures as well. I was reading that book around that time um, as well as listening to Viveki and uh, you're trying to understand the world um, as as essentially as potential um, and how things manifest through potential um, and sort of that sort of um, that cooperation you need to have with um, the future and the past at the same time. Um, yeah. Um, the other aspect, I think, um, for me, I, I, what I was going through when I was in a sort of crisis of faith when I was reading that book, that book made me... Uh, maybe changed how I saw Christianity I as a coming from a very uh, theological perspective and rather than saying that um uh, there's okay I'll maybe say it this way there's there's a difference between story and narrative narrative is just a series of bullet points Jeff went to the store Jeff bought a coffee Jeff went home rather than the story here is Jeff has you know uh had a tragedy but he's still going about his daily routine. He interacts with people in the moment, but he now feels void and absent because of the tragedy. Jeff goes home and cries. Like that is a story. That is a, that has the symbols in there. There's interactions, there's characters. Um, but the narrative, which is often what theology reduces things down to, uh, it, it desacralizes the world. Uh, so, that's, I think, what that book did for me was it kind of gave me a bit more of a sacred space and way to connect things together. Um, well, it's when you said that, so many things bounced into my head. I mean, that that's just a brilliant way of, of framing things to say that the narrative, the narrative certainly changes the way we see things. But in my mind, it also leaves a lot of space it leaves space for the story that you told, the symbolic story that you told, and a whole bunch of other stories that could also be told. Because um, like in the Bible, when you read the story of David and his sons, and particularly Absalom, mm. and, and you read David's story of how he raised, we only get a glimpse of how he raised his children, but yeah. that's enough of a glimpse to 
plop into that an entire simple yeah. story that relates to my life and your life and everybody else's life. And so it leaves this space open so that every single person can get some deeper understanding of how a father can tragically damage the relationship with his children. And the biblical story doesn't tell the whole story. It leaves lots of it out so that we can interact with it. Right. And the yeah. parables are kind of the same way. The parables just give us this bare skeleton. And then, then we feel ourselves drawn into that story and become a part of it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. The poetic is quite an important frame to have. Uh, we've lost the poetic. Um, there's a kind of a poetic injustice going on right now where we're not able to handle ambiguity or uh, complexity in a way when you read a poem or you you read poetic literature or um you could say po poetic and symbolic are interchangeable in my in my my headspace um yeah you it's the same with telling a story on the page as well you have to give enough details there that inspire the imagination but en enough of a frame that you don't kind of think outside of what the original intent is um that's what i'm trying to do with my music as well mm -hmm. to give you enough you know the chord progression for, as you brought this like, beautiful chord progression like the chord progression for me is i i don't think about it's a one five six four four six five one or whatever the music phrase is i'm thinking what does what does this do for me and what will this do for others and what is the feeling and the what is this resonating with and where what other things am i healing and do I need to actually write those melodies down and have them stated in that music or like, can they just be floating out there that, you know, other people can sing along or participate with. Um, mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's interesting. You brought up too about David and Absalom. Um, the, the older way of storytelling was that, yeah, you would get, you would get, the narrative and the story, but you would still know what the story is. You you wouldn't get it disconnected from whole, ra rather than what we tend to do now is kind of compartmentalize things down and uh, atomize things into um, just one portion rather than the whole event. Um, I I have a whole. Um, thing i'm working on right now between uh romance and rom-coms and how rom-coms are kind of are that sort of segment down of when harry met sally and he can't that movie does it well but that was kind of the beginning of the end for me um because you don't get a full peter there you kind of get it loses revolution because it skips parts and it skips parts that would be relevant or you know um imagine you get David and Goliath, um, David and Bashida, and then David and Absalom, and you, you remove those connective tissues, those, those parts, you wouldn't get a full picture, you wouldn't get a full story. But because we have that there, we have a like an epic, you could say, that uh, you can pass on, and there's different learning points and highs and lows. And uh, I think what we're experiencing now is we get all lows and all highs, and we're kind of... We're, not, we're not comfortable with that ambiguity um, and the messiness of 
what stories have to go through um or what we have to go through as artists or storytellers or creatives one of the things that just popped into my mind was an art show i went to a number of years ago 10 or 15 years ago maybe it was called the cult of beauty and it was at one of the museums in san francisco and it was just the tr- many 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 of the treasures of the pre-raphaelite movement and there is so much beauty in that art um sometimes it's just beauty i mean that's not a fair way to say it sometimes there's just a visual frisson it's it's trying to capture your capture your heart with the visual look of it right um but but some of those paintings that the pre-Raphaelites did were so deeply romantic in the sense that the painting tells a whole story. Like, um, I don't even remember who the who the players are, but there's one where there's the beautiful maiden in her beautiful long gown tapping the shoulder of the guy who's kneeling because she's honoring him as the knight exemplar or something like that. Um, you can tell in that story that there's more there than just a rom-com story <laughs> that, that there have been trials and suffering that, it, that people have gone through to get to this point where this great honor is being bestowed. There, there's a lot underneath it. Right. Um, but so much <laughs> we see now for a while, my husband, just for my husband and I just for fun watched every single Christmas rom-com that we could in about a two-week period one after the other and there's there's like two plots and every single story is the same two plots yeah <laughs> and it's just like is it going to happen again is he going to yeah. be called home for his his father's illness and then his father ends up dying and he has to take care of his father's business or is she going to be called home because <laughs> And then they yeah. meet somebody and then they fall in love and yeah. And uh, yeah, it's pretty hilarious. I think there's also um patterns of normalization with that within that. We've become kind of addicted to that certainty and want that certainty out of stories or even out of music. I would even yeah, strongly say that about music now. That music has become a part of a uh a predictive text or predictive pattern that people have in their head they know that when you take the bass out of the a dance song you go through the chord pattern and you take the bass element out you leave a space there they want it to be filled it be splush back in and the bass is back in and the place starts to rock and move again that sort of um uh you could say trick or technique um has become something people are addicted to now and do anything other than that uh, is to go against what is normal. Um, and suddenly if you continually do that um, to subvert that expectation is, um, is considered bad or bad. It's a, it's a, it's a, again, it's a bad technical aspect rather than uh, we didn't used to always have that, that element of, um, dance music in this example where people would be so programmed or you could say or be so addicted to that um payoff that catharsis and um perhaps i think if i was going to say anything to 
um, people trying to be artists or creativity uh, creators today is to try and find new ways to bring back that ambiguity where um, developments can happen that peak the, the audience's ear. Um, and often that's more subtle than people want it to be. Um, there's, there's, a, um, there's a great rule in fashion. I'm not sure if you've heard this rule, but you only need to change a garment by 3% in order for it to be considered new and fresh and to have the effect. If you change it more than 3%, people won't understand it at first or it will be rejected. So, but that subtle inflection point often catches the eye and it's, it leads onto a new path. Um, so yeah, again, that's high and low points and not being able to, um, yeah, understand that there's a um like a trap of authenticity there that people want things to feel like they're they've got what they paid for and they're having an authentic experience uh, rather than um, fully embracing the uncertainty that <laughs> that um, that they've signed up for um, and you sign up for like when you play a piece of music um, again like you unless you haven't heard you're hearing it for the first time you're signing up for uh, the uncertainty for what's about to happen um and then again the mod, modern world's kind of flatten things down so we re, we often repeat and re-listen to things and get comfortable with oh you know i know what you know that progression of um miles davis or you know miles yeah yeah marvin gay we become like if that becomes a no that people want to be reminded for certainty and for comfort. Um, I think you just explained a lot of myself to me <laughs> because I noticed, I probably noticed this when I was, I don't know, maybe, maybe even in my twenties, the first time I noticed it is um, I went to the movie deliverance oh. and I was there for about 10 minutes and I had to get up and leave. I couldn't, face i could tell things are going to go south and they're going to go south in such a catastrophic way i don't want to be there when it happens and i can't divorce myself from you know this is the fourth wall suspension of disbelief all that i just can't divorce myself from that i if i once get engaged with the characters and the story there's like a cord uh, unless i get up and leave i can't cut that cord and and i've always been that way and i think from what you're saying, it's a. Uh, in some parts of my life, I can I have taught myself to be comfortable with uncertainty, but there are other parts of my life where I just cannot handle uncertainty, especially if I see it going to a very dark place. And I don't know if does that make me a chicken? What does that make me that I can't handle that kind of stuff? You know. You I think what? again is. Um, maybe I will. The office. Yeah, but... Did you ever see The Office? Yes, yes. Yeah. The... I can't watch The Office because it doesn't. It's awkward. Yeah, yeah. But it's, but it's not just the awkwardness. If I was in that situation and it got that awkward in real life, I would feel so uncomfortable for the people involved. I just wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So what what I was yeah what I was maybe gonna 
go back to is I think the the if that's that sort of pattern matching and needing to have confirmation that things are going the right end, there's also the the complete inference of that where people are have become addicted to complete uncertainty and complete novelty um and a complete embrace of the shock and it becomes the shock of the shock in some sense the, the new shock of the new shock is um it's actually a great robert hughes actually put out a great art documentary called the shock of the new um then he put out um a second one called uh, the new shock of the new <laughs> it was like it, how things kind of it once that novelty wears off there yeah how how do you get more more feedback or more um more reception or more um buy-in from an audience by being outrageous again or subversive again so, so, there's so both of those things. that's happening in the museums right yeah. and that's happening in the music venues and in every place Sadly, the Sydney Gallery here um, is doing a thing where they'll blend, they'll have a nice, they'll do a nice portraits gallery with a bunch of different um, portraits from different eras, and then they'll put up a, a photographic portrait inside of those painting portraits, but that photographic portrait will have subversive elements in it, and that completely changes the tone of the room and how you see the other works. You almost... If it's almost almost like de again desacralizing or de making the the experience of that seeing those works kind of uh, avoid it, it it has that sort of alienation where you're no longer able to you're so affected by this photographic print that's kind of playing on the elements of other things in the room that you're no longer able to appreciate one of the other because you just kind of put out by the um so it's like it's almost like they're purposely desensitizing us yeah yeah that's probably a good way to say it um, um my daughter and i went to this thing up in northern california that was called a mystery spot i don't know if they have mystery spots where you live um if you don't know that there are other mystery spots and you think this is the only mystery spot in the world, <laughs> it's pretty easy to get roped into it. They right. they tell you when you go there, you, you pay a little bit of money and you can go out to where the mystery spot is. And, and uh, they tell you that this spot has been looked at by scientists and nobody can figure out why it is the way it is. And, you know, they tell you this whole big story. And of course, you know, it's all bogus when you do it, but it's still fun. So you go out there and it there's something wrong with the gravity so instead of standing upright you're standing like this you can feel yourself leaning at about a 45 degree angle and and you're continually trying to pull yourself upright you know grab onto something and hold on to it like you would if you were walking with with uh, magnetic shoes on the side of a spaceship or something you're trying to pull yourself upright but you just can't because the gravity is so strong. And like, so weird, you know, and then you go back in the little hut and they say, oh yeah, you know, the FBI was even out here looking at this and trying to understand what was going on under the earth at this point. And they're telling this whole story. We went back out again. We looked a second time because we knew there was a gimmick here. Right? There has to be a gimmick. Well, 
So then you discover they've built the entire building in such a way that you can't tell until you're in the building that the building is off. The whole building is off. And but when you're in it, you feel like you're you're in a normal building. And even the right. trees outside, they have grown those trees and guided the roots so that the tree grows in a certain way. And they have um, set up the water troughs where the water is running uphill. It appears to be running uphill, but that's because of the way that they have built the trees and the hill and everything else to give it the appearance of water running uphill. When you first see it, if you if you're not if, if you just let yourself into the experience, you're completely convinced. And I mean, I'm a very skeptical person, so I knew it was bogus. But even then, it felt very convincing. But it's kind of like what they're trying to do. They, I mean, who are they? I don't know. Am I a conspiracy theorist? The world feels very disorienting. Yes. Yes. Um, and that's what magic does. Like, that's actually the one of the you could say true intentions of magic is a to put you into that disorientated uh state um some would even call it a flow state um there's many critiques of the flow state um i'm i'm neutral i think it's a helpful concept to have um maybe it's my bias because i i feel like when i make art it, it does actually come from a sense of being inspired or being in a sense of flow and it goes and it comes and you can't control it. And mm -hmm. that's just my experience of it. Um, I remember when we, um, yeah, when, when I first, I bought this new keyboard and I bought it um, in, co uh, in COVID or essentially in the middle of COVID. And for that first six weeks, every single time I sat down at that keyboard, a new piece of music would come to me just because it was just, everything was in the right set of environments i was in the right place it was inspiring enough there was enough material around me to be like to be even negatively and positively inspired for and i just brought something out of me um getting getting back to the 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 magic trick though um that is, sadly that is artistry in some sense like perfecting all those different little nuances to, to get you to believe and to buy in um that is that like there's a um there's a confrontation that we have to do as artists to know that we are kind of leading an audience into you know when you put your pictures around in your art gallery you have an intended desire effect that you want if they see this first then they'll 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 experience this differently and they'll move on to here. that sort of that sense of mapping out space and having a designed um that's almost unavoidable like it's, it is a preference hierarchy in some sense um but perhaps what's going on um with us is some again modern people or is that um we're not aware how much that is happening to us at any one given moment um even um yeah getting back to music even getting back like music and social media platforms now the algorithms are designing uh, a space for us to be 
encapsulated in or caught up or contained in that is of our own reflection is of our own doing um you know once you put do a put a pattern of behavior into a social media algorithm it'll give you back what you want um and it'll do that for, you know give you that disorientation from reality and the circumstances and the things that you're experiencing and you look at the social media reality and it does feel like things are off tilt things are kind of not as they should be or disorientating um how do we live with that i think you just have to be aware of it and navigate it um well so it's like narcissus right when when he saw his own reflection he didn't know it was his own reflection but the fact that it was his own reflection is what trapped him yeah yeah i I was reminded actually of that recently which i thought was really yeah something i need to consider more i thought you were going to go to the myth of sisyphus there where it's we we feel like um we finally we finally understood everything and we've gotten so far up the mountain and we have a better perspective and then everything gets reset again and then you have to go through that journey of re you know pushing the hard thing up the the rock and getting a better perspective and feeling like all your toils and your struggles are are worth it and then something happens and then you know it feels feels for not um did you ever see the movie the mission i just saw that this year actually finally that's an old movie that's oh like uh, yeah 85 or 86 something like that maybe 87 yeah i saw it when i was a missionary in japan and uh i was way too young and dumb then to appreciate yeah. it get the drift of yeah. it but that one scene in there where he's he's got this bunch of junk that he's dragging up the mountain he gets all the way up to the top of the mountain you know and um you just want to keep yelling at him cut the leash you know just cut yeah. just cut the connection let the thing go yeah and uh that's such a a clear picture of who we are you know that what's that verse in uh hebrews the sin that so easily entangles that that Mm. junk that we just drag up to the top of the mountain over and over and over again because we don't recognize that there's somebody willing to pick that burden up for us and carry it for us you know it's a fantastic movie um i completely forgot that aspect of the movie i was so caught up in the second half and um the the sacrifice elements of that of standing up for what you believe in that i forgot that first half which is all the the trial of of um trial of redemption you could say that he was going through and he purposely gets put through that trial um only he can in some sense um come to that point of resolution like it, it has to be um and i i guess i yeah the more i think about this now the more um that's going to resonate with me yeah often often that weight of expectation or the, those boundaries or um burdens that you put on yourself uh have to be removed by you like they can't really be removed by others and you have to do the hard work and not avoid the pain to yeah deal with it essentially <laughs> like there's another way 
I think um going through the pain is often yeah again it's something we 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 not it's not just artists but I think we as is is um people living in this place and time tend to do because um yeah we we've lost that sense that um there is a tragic element of life that things don't always go according to plan um and we are carrying those burdens around on us and we just have to try and, well, about, and i guess what i was trying to say is there is also there is a um we have a friend who is walking with us on that path and so whenever jordan talks about struggling up the hill to the city of god it's as though in his mind um we have to struggle up on our own until we get to the top and then everything will be okay but really it's in the the releasing ourselves into christ's hand as we struggle up the hill so that we're carrying that burden together that um that brings us the the beauty and the pleasure of knowing that we're not alone um i mean at least that's the way i see it um yes yeah we, we can't get rid of that burden nobody else can take that burden from us because it's like like if you're a drowning man they won't even try to save you if you're still struggling and kicking it isn't mm. until you relax and maybe you can't relax until you're almost dead <laughs> But when you relax, then they can come and they can rescue you. But as long as you're kicking and screaming, they can't rescue you because they'll go down too, right? So so when you're carrying this enormously heavy burden up the hill like the guy is in, in the mission, he's the one that needs to hand it over and say, okay, this is too heavy for me. You have to come to that recognition. This is too heavy for me. I can't carry it by myself. Will you carry it for me? And yeah. <laughs> In um, yeah, what's coming to me? I there's a track. It's actually my favorite, or if you should have a favorite track on a or a favorite work of yours, um, as as an artist. But the very last uh of my recent yeah tracks or recent works on Open Futures is called "The Place of No Return." Mm -hmm. Um, deals with that concept. Uh, that um. Yeah, there's often a, a, a it's not just a turning point, but it's also it's often a place where uh, the old life is no longer your um, yeah, it's no longer it's it's what's it's um it's still present with you, but it's no longer your burden. Like you you can no longer go back. Um, in some sense, you're always moving in a new direction. Um, the the nuance to that is that you have to believe that being like being present to that is better than the the becoming aspect of that if you idolize the the utopian state um everything being possible to you and everything being pleasurable um then you won't ever be grounded in the so uh, you won't be ever grounded in that in the place of no return um you're not meant to stay there you're meant to move on and be carried um so there's that that sort of tendency is um something i deal with is, there's um it is actual an actual place that you get to in life or specific moments you can look back on and go yeah that was a that that was a place with no return um 
but you can also never you can't idolize that call to adventure or that mm-hmm. um, leap of faith. Yeah, I, I was just having a conversation with Matthew, who I met at the Chino conference, um, and we were talking about in the call to adventure or in even making furniture or anything, there comes this place where you've reached your limit, the limit of your skill or the limit of your knowledge. You're you're at the outskirts of where you can get to. And the only way to push beyond that is to recognize your incapacity, to recognize your lack of skill, to recognize your lack of knowledge. And uh, Jordan Peterson always says that you meet the transcendent at the limits of your knowledge. Yeah. Another way he puts it is you meet the transcendent when you err. So it's at that point when we, you know, the, the point of no return, I guess, that you have to acknowledge your need. <clears throat> and, and that when you do acknowledge your need, then you can press out a little bit further into this place of adventure. But if you idolize that, if you... If you bring the transcendent down to the place where you can hold on to it, yeah. right, then then you've reduced the size of God. So it he always has to be the one who is just outside, just outside the reach. I mean, I'm not putting it very well because I'm terrified of saying something heretical. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, no, I think there's a lot. Um, that we're missing there. I call it the romantic vision um, rather than the cathartic or the comedic vision. Uh, by that, I mean that um, a romance often goes beyond those, even those narrative points or the story points. The romance is the continuation, is the legacy, is the tradition. Like it's King Arthur and the romance of the of the knights or the and the Holy Grail. Um, it's always a long lasting. It's a, it's um, you, you often, um, uh, in a comedy, it's about really one person in particular, like you, particularly in rom coms, it's often about the male essentially. Like, if you really study rom coms like I have, you see that it's just the most of those films aren't actually about the female characters, they're about the idolization of the male. Um, but rather than a, a, a romance it's about a people and a place and it's about characters and it's about how they all work together and there's there's obviously a leader a central focus point but often it's a group of people going in different directions um so yeah uh, that's um that sort of romantic views um it's very hard to to communicate across to people because it comes with so much baggage um in what people think of a romance which is some things i've been trying to flesh out here is that that having a place for tragedy and uncertainty is um um that's kind of what a romance traditionally or typically should be for is that things don't always work out but there's a higher purpose or a greater call in that um and you see that with you know the mission, right? Things don't go well on the mission in the mall, but it doesn't make it not a beautiful film, or doesn't make the missionaries' work uh, void or unpurposeful. Uh, mm. In fact, it 
film argues that it was all um it was it did have a did have a beauty or a place or a purpose to it um which is that high resonance or that that um yeah making making the uh yeah making the space for the sacrifice to have its own place um so I call that the open future, essentially. That's, I stole that from Favaki. So that that maybe is a good place to wrap up here. And could you send me links to all your albums and I could put them in the, the, no. No, the description section beneath the video and any other links that you want to share with people? I don't know if you have a website or a link to your art or anything like that. It would be fun to okay. get to know you better that way too. This has been Happy great, Jesse. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great, I guess for you, it's a morning. Yeah, it's almost 10 o'clock here. Oh, okay. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. <laughs>